If you brought along a copy of the Bible, please turn to our gospel reading, Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And I think pray for Wes. I think uh, all the settings were changed for a concert. And um, so you guys get to be the ones he's getting them reset on. Sorry about that. Um, Luke chapter 24. Now, as you're finding this passage, let's remember together what happened leading up to this remarkable moment on the road to Emmaus. And the key thing is this. This was on a Sunday. And on the Friday right before this, Jesus had died on the cross. And that's Luke chapter 23. And when he died on the cross, this is the key. Something happened. It wasn't only a demonstration of love. It wasn't only, look how much God loves us. Now, it's definitely that. But it wasn't only that that he did a thing that's exemplary. It's also the fact that when he died on the cross, he was in battle with the forces of darkness. He was in battle with Satan. He was in battle with death and all the destruction and the chaos and the decay that ravages humans' lives in this world. And on the cross, even though it looked like death and decay and destruction killed him, more than the fact that it killed him, he swallowed it in and it went through this like amazing cold fusion process and he destroyed it. He was, it's like um, Gandalf in the Balrog, you know, like where he, the Balrog grabs him and drags him down. And, and it looks to everybody like evil is won and Gandalf has died. But really, Jesus was grabbing death and dragging it to death. And that had happened on Friday night. Something happened. And because that happened, The world was a different place. So that by 6 o'clock on the evening of the first Good Friday, the world had changed. God had defeated death and the evil powers. And what's interesting is that for three days, nobody knew that it happened. For three days, everybody thought that the Balrog had killed Gandalf, right? Everybody thought that death had grabbed Jesus and death had been victorious over Jesus. But on that first Easter day, when Jesus was raised from the dead, what's happening is that we see the first sign that death is dead. What is the first sign that death has been killed? The resurrection of the dead. Jesus himself comes back from the dead. In other words, death has lost its grip. Something is different now. Something has changed now. And so the resurrection of Jesus is the first sign, the first hint. Is it the daffodil that comes up first in the spring? What is it? All right, so Jesus, in his resurrection, he's like the first daffodil, right? Breaking through, showing that something has changed. In our passage this morning, there are these two people. They're followers of Jesus. They're walking along on that first Sunday, the first Easter Sunday, when Jesus has been raised from the dead. They're walking from Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus. It's been three days since he's crucified. Here they are. They're walking along. They, they don't know what's happened. They don't know that death and evil have been defeated. And Jesus has risen from the dead, and they don't know this. And, and when Jesus 
defeated death and evil and rose from the dead, this door to a new way of living, to a new world, to a new creation has been thrown open. God's new creation has invaded this old, tired, death-infected creation. They don't know that. They're walking along disoriented, confused, despairing. And then... The first sign of the new creation, Jesus, his resurrected body, he joins them. He's walking with them in his real body, flesh and blood, and they don't recognize him. And so what does he do? What does he do to solve the problem? He has a Bible study with them, right? He teaches them from scripture. And what else does he do? He not only has a Bible study, what else does he do? He shares a meal with them. He eats with them. That's right. And in, in these things combined, suddenly they see him and they realize. I just love verse 31. Luke chapter 24, verse 31. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So verse 33. And they rose that same hour and they returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those who were with them and they gathered together and they said, the Lord is risen indeed. Loosely translated, holy cow. And then over the course of the next 50 days, we watch, if you keep reading through Luke, and then you read through volume 2, which is the book of Acts. It's, Luke wrote two books. Volume 1 is the gospel. Volume 2 is the book of Acts. If you keep reading them, and you read them like two volumes, when you keep reading through this, you see that over the course of the next 50 days, the followers of Jesus slowly begin to realize what's happened. That on the cross, Jesus defeated the darkest and the strongest power, the power of death itself, the power of evil, the power of Satan, the power of all the darkness that ravages our lives. And as this realization grows in them, we see when we look at the first followers of Jesus, we see what happens to humans who begin to live inside of the new creation within the old creation. When you follow those first followers of Jesus, you see humans beginning to learn to live within God's new world, God's new creation. And so as you read through the last chapter of Luke and you read through the book of Acts, you notice that their lives become marked by two things, worship and mission. This morning, we're going to focus on worship. Over the weeks to come, we're going to focus on mission, these things that begin to characterize the followers of Jesus. Notice verse 52, the very end of, of Luke's gospel. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, what I want to show you is this. Gathering with the church in worship is the primary way we respond to the love of God, to the gospel, to the cross, to the resurrection. It's not through a prayer. It's not through deeds. The fundamental way, the most important way, the primary way the followers of God have always chosen to respond to what God has done is by getting together and worshiping the God who's done this thing. Now, God the Father, he loves you and he loves me 
And he loves your neighbor and your enemy. And he loves this world so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross for you and for me and your neighbor and your enemy. And he died on the cross out of love for us. And he kept his promises and he rescues us and he redeems us. And when we hear this story, when the first followers of Jesus heard this story and they realized what Jesus had done, this incredible sacrifice, what happens? They answer the love of God with their own love for God. That our love of God is an answering love. And to gather in worship is fundamentally to answer God's love with our love. To gather in worship is to respond to this God who just keeps loving us. Listen again to our Old Testament passage, Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 10. This is God talking to you and to me. Listen to him. My beloved speaks and says to me. That's how you should read that, exactly as it's written. To me, what does God say? Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away with me. That's Sunday morning worship. That's you waking up on Sunday and hearing the God of the cosmos say to you, arise, my love. And no matter how covered in shame you are on Sunday mornings or confusion or doubt, no matter how ugly you feel or undeserving, God himself is saying, arise, my love, and come away with me. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 14. Can you believe God says this? Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. That's worship. It's us saying, for real. I mean, you know, right, God? And God says, arise, my love. You see, to worship the living God, the God we know as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is to give voice to our love, our faith, our hope. It's, it's to put into words. Look at it this way. In the same way that a man who is in love would just gush on and on about the beloved, this is what we're doing this morning. We're gushing. We're going on and on. In the same way, when we worship, we are standing in the presence of the living God, declaring who he is and what he's done to sweep us off our feet. And just like a couple that's in love will go back over the story of their first acquaintance and dating and their discovery of each other, they tell and they retell the story of how it all happened. In the same way, the worshiping heart will naturally want to tell and retell the story of God in the world, of God in Israel, of God in Jesus, of God and me. This is a major element of Christian worship. Listen again to Luke 24, verse 33. And they rose that same hour. It was already so late that they had said to Jesus, don't keep walking, it's too late, it's obvious, right? But once they saw what really had happened, they got up at that same hour and they returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11, those who were with them gathered, and they said, the Lord is risen indeed. Can you believe it? Now, there's a danger here. 
The Bible definitely expresses the love of God in language taken from the erotic relationship of human lovers. That, that's what Song of Solomon is all about. And you should always read it as first and foremost about the love that God has for you that should evoke within you a responding love. But here's the danger. That's only part of the picture in the Bible for worship. Because in the Bible, worship is more action than attitude. And if we double down on the Jesus is my boyfriend kind of approach to worship, we can accidentally miscalibrate things. Now again, worship is about lovers. But we need to be careful that, to remember that in the Bible, worship, when the church gathers in worship, it's more action than it is attitude. And in our gospel passage this morning, the way you can recognize this is you can see that with Jesus and worship in our passage in Luke chapter 24, Jesus is the one who's doing most of the work. Right? They're walking along. They're confused. Jesus is doing all of this work. He's teaching them right. They invite him to dinner and he's like, you thought you were the host, <laughs> right? And he becomes the host. He breaks the bread. He opens their eyes. Worship is fundamentally, yes, a love relationship, but fundamentally it's about God's action and our reactions to God. Notice the last paragraph of Luke's gospel, verse 50. Then Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and Jesus, lifting up his hands, blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and carried up into heaven, and they worshiped him. See, worship is this response to God's actions. They worshiped him. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So let me, let me put it this way. When you accidentally go from worship is this love expression, when you accidentally then make the assumption that worship is primarily your love expression, that the base of worship is your devotion to God, you offering something to God, when you begin to say things like, in worship, there's an audience of one, that God is the audience and I am the actor. Suddenly, you've shifted accidentally. Through this assumption, you've made worship rooted in your actions and God in the receptor of your actions. Now, suddenly, the point of worship is for us to express affection and loyalty and if that becomes the basic assumption of worship there's a major problem that comes out of it and it's this you begin to assume that the most important thing in worship is for you to be sincere boy you got to mean it if what worship is really about is about me expressing 
me being the actor, God being the audience, then I've got to really mean it. And if worship is fundamentally an expression of my devotion to God, then the last thing I should be is a hypocrite. My expression needs to be honest and true and fresh and authentic. And when we make that the driving engine of worship, it gets really burdensome because you got to be on your game. Because you got to believe it. Because you got to feel it. And if you don't really believe it this morning, if you don't really feel it this morning, or you go through one of those seasons of life where you've been struck mute by the suffering of life, where there's just nothing left, where there's hardly any margin left, then suddenly, You've discovered that worship no longer works for you. But when we see that worship is fundamentally God's action, our feelings are good, they are there, but they are not the basis. It's God's action in our interaction. Now, how do we interact with God in worship? Well, In the end of Luke and throughout Acts, there are four primary ways that we come to worship in order to interact with God. There are four primary actions and interactions that occur. They are scripture, sacrament, prayer, and song. We interact with God in worship through scripture. Whenever we read the Bible in worship, scripture is this important thing. In fact, when you look in in here in Luke's gospel, there's this big thing. Jesus taught them about himself through the scriptures. Always when you read through the book of Acts, the New Testament, and the people of God are gathering on Sundays to worship God the way we're doing here, scripture is a huge part of it for three primary reasons. First of all, the Spirit of God fills scripture. And because God's Spirit fills this book in a way he doesn't fill any other book, because he fills it, it is fruitful. It is full of life. The Father in heaven inhabits the Bible. And when God's people come to the Bible, God lovingly meets with his children. And he talks with them. I love the way Mariano Magrassi he, um, was, he's a late Archbishop of Milan. He put it this way. When the church is reading the Bible, it is not so much a matter of reading a book as seeking someone. That's what we're doing here. When the scripture is read and we're listening, we're seeking Jesus. I love, in the words of Honorius, a 12th century German theologian, with all its ardor, the church seeks in scripture the one whom she loves. Martin Luther, um, in the 16th century, he put it this way, Holy Scripture is the garment which our Lord Jesus Christ has put on, in which he lets himself be seen and found. Remember, we love Jesus. Jesus died for us. We want him. We want to see him. So where do we look for him? We look for him in Scripture. That's why our eyes and ears and minds are open to Scripture. A second reason that Scripture fills the worship services of the church is because Christian worship is about celebrating God, his mighty acts, his acts of 
creation and covenant and new creation and new covenant. In the church, we need to constantly learn about this God. We need to learn better who he is and what he's done. We need to practice telling and retelling the stories of God in the world and God in Israel and God in the church and God in us. So notice with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, when they were stuck in ignorance, how did Jesus deal with it? He had a Bible study. This is a remarkable thing that one of the first things the resurrected Jesus did was, let's open the scriptures together. One of the great challenges for all humans is to discover more and more who God is. And scripture is a resource for that. A third reason that scripture fills the worship of the church is that a fundamental goal of the Christian life is to become mature, mature humans. Mature Christians. And a mature Christian is someone whose behavior is holy, whose desires are holy, and attitudes are holy. And a fundamental way that our character, our behavior, our attitudes get transformed into holiness is by giving serious attention to God's word. All right, so worship is about us responding in love to this God who loves us. And most fundamentally, it's about responding in action. Feelings come and go. Feelings are a great gift. We love them. We read books like the Song of Solomon that celebrate the feelings. But the fundamental issue, more fundamental than attitude, is action. God's action and our action. And one of those actions is Scripture. A second action in worship is sacraments. We see this right in Luke 24. It's not only scripture, it's also the Lord's Supper. Look, Jesus called the church to keep him, his death, and his resurrection as the focal point of our lives, our worship, our witness, our mission. And Jesus did not think that Christ-centered preaching was enough. So he gave the church the word and the table. He left his church not only a gospel to preach, but rites of water and bread and wine to practice. And and when churches hold these two things together faithfully, faithful preaching, faithful sacraments, it gets a little bit harder to forget him. Now, Now, think with me for just a minute. You know, we call this a bunch of different things, right? We call it the Lord's Supper. What else do we call it? Eucharist. Anything else? Communion. And y'all are leaving out what the Catholics call it, Mass. That's right. All right, Mass, Eucharist, Lord's Supper, Communion. These four names for it are because it's rich and thick, and all four of them come straight out of Scripture, okay? They all four work. Um, It's not just that your family, it's not just like if you grow up Baptist and it's communion, the mass means this Catholic thing. No, all of them come straight out of Scripture. But I just want to focus on one of the names we call it. The Lord's Supper. Why do we call it that? We call it that because it's his meal. Because in Luke 24, they thought they were inviting Jesus to dinner. But Jesus is suddenly the host. It's the Lord's Supper. He is the host. Look at Luke chapter 24, verse 30. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And broke it and gave it to them. Listen, the church for centuries has been saying this. You've got to recognize that what we're doing here this morning is that. 
And we have got to stop thinking that because we kind of built this building and kind of built this table and we brought the bread and the wine, that somehow we are the ones serving each other. And all of us have got to learn to do exactly what happens in Luke 24, to recognize that it is the hand of Jesus that is giving you the bread and the wine. That Jesus is the host. And that Christians receive the bread and the wine not from their brothers and sisters. They receive it from the hand of Jesus himself. From the hand of the one who first gave the bread and the wine. And another thing we need to see. This is a victory feast. When their eyes were opened and they saw what was going on, do you think they got super, like, um, sad? No. They got so charged up, they raced back to Jerusalem. The Lord's Supper is a victory meal. It, it's a celebration. It's what Psalm 23 says. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. All the enemies that are ravaging you all week long, right here, you're eating right in their face. You're saying to them, your mama... Because we've won. All the depression and sadness and evil that ravages our lives, we come to the king's table. We're planting a flag in the ground. We're eating a meal on the battlefield. Christ is one. This is a celebratory meal. The, the Lord's Supper is not a moment to wallow in sorrow. It is a moment to celebrate the victory. The picture we should have at Eucharist should not be a room of people with heads bowed and eyes closed. It should be a bar after a battle when the soldiers who survived are in the room toasting. Can't believe it happened. Amazed at what has occurred. Notice the description at the end of Luke's gospel, verse 52. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple feeling very bad and sorrowful. No. Is there a place for feeling bad and sorrowful? Yeah. But look, the Lord's table is closer to a birthday dinner than a funeral meal. If at, if at a birthday meal, you know, I've got five children and one of them is really acting foolish and crazy. We're going to ignore it as much as we can, right? But if it just gets out of control, right, and he's jumped up on the table and he's about to throw the mashed potatoes across the room at grandma, in that moment, we're probably going to step in, right? Um, unless she started it, I don't know. But no, we're going to step in and we're going to deal with him. First Corinthians is stepping in and dealing with somebody who's just acting the fool at the table. But that's not the normal thing at birthday parties. The normal thing at the birthday party is to let it rip, tater chip, right? To have a great meal to celebrate. That's what this is. And if we show up at this table and we've really messed it up all week long, we do need to come to this table confessing and, and, and asking for God's forgiveness. But we need to receive that forgiveness and lift our heads with joy. Worship, we interact with God through scripture, through sacrament, third, through prayer. All over this passage, there's prayer. And as you keep reading in Acts, in chapter 2, verse 42, when it's summarizing the worship of the church, it says they devoted themselves to teaching right, to the breaking of bread, and to what? The prayers. 
Prayer is a part of worship. Why? Because God is concerned for the world. The world matters to God. The God that we are gazing on in love and adoration is a God who is looking at a world that is in, in the grip of bondage and he's a God who loves this world so much. Whenever we gather around King Jesus and we look full into his wonderful face, our eyes should not grow dim to the world. The world should get bigger to us. The brokenness of the world should get deeper in us. Because when we're gathered in worship, we are right at the intersection of the victory of Christ and the remaining brokenness in this world. And our job, and the passage of Revelation that we heard read, our job is to be priests, all of us. It's to bring into worship our deepest prayers, our most confusing situations during the week. And to give voice to them in that spot. To come to the victory table. And to offer to this victorious king. Why is it happening this way? I know you've won this thing. But why am I so knocked out by X, Y, or Z? Or why is my neighbor struggling with this or that? It, the church is devoted in worship to prayer. So look, you need to pray. We pray because we believe God acts differently if we don't pray. A fourth thing that we see, a fundamental action in worship, when we read the Bible and we look at the worship of the followers of Christ, is singing. Song. In worship, we sing. Now look, there's this weird thing that's happened in America today where some people use the word worship to talk about singing. Like the worship was great today. Or um, we, we, we even have started calling song leaders wor the worship leader. As if, and, and what's happened is part of the church has shrunk worship to this moment where it's just you drawing a circle around yourself, having some kind of private erotic experience with Jesus. Worship is more than singing. The whole service is worship. Sitting at his feet, listening to his word is worship. Standing up and confessing our allegiance to him is worship. Kneeling and offering him our sins is worship. It's all worship. But worship is not just music. But in the same way, there's another part of the church that sees the music as just the warm-up for the sermon. As if the music is just like getting everything ready for the real show. And the real show is the teaching. That's not true either. Worship is scripture and sacrament and prayer and song. Now, why, why does the church sing? It's an odd thing that we get together. I mean, if you compare it to other organizations, and we put all this money, and we stand in this kind of semicircle, and we sing these songs, why do we sing? Four quick reasons why, why the people of God sing as a part of their worship. All through the Bible, number one, song and sacrifice are connected. Look, there's a place for trained musicians in the church. But the job of the trained musicians is to help all of us sing. Because in the Bible, singing and sacrifice are connected. And one of the ways in the Bible we offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God is through singing. Our voices ascending to Yahweh in a cloud of song. A second reason that singing is so important to the church in worship is in the Bible, there's always a relationship between singing and seeking. 
singing in worship is a fundamental way we seek the face of God. When we sing, the satellite dishes of our hearts tilt toward God. A third reason that singing is a fundamental action in worship is because throughout the Bible there is a relationship between song and glory. When the praises of the people of God ascend, God descends in glory. When we seek God in song, we will stumble upon His glory. This is in 2 Chronicles when they're dedicating the temple. And in the same way, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, there's this connection between singing and God filling us with His Spirit. A fourth reason that singing is so important is that in Scripture there is a relationship between song and joy. During this, the portion of our service where we're, we're singing, we are ascending into the presence of Yahweh. And having been declared forgiven, the people of God burst out in praise and thanks and declarations of the greatness of God. So look, let me wrap all of this up. We are Easter people. When we learn, like the first followers of Jesus here at the end of Luke's gospel and throughout the book of Acts, when we learn to live in God's new world, our lives will become marked by worship. And so week after week, we will go from having a two-and-a-half-day weekend to a one-and-a-half-day weekend. See, our world says the weekend is in recreation, right? You get off work on Friday, you got Saturday, you got Sunday. But Christians say, we don't have Sunday. The Lord has Sunday. It's the Lord's day. And it messes with our schedule. And it messes with so many things. And when we learn to live in God's kingdom, we learn that that's super important. And we'll see that in the weeks to come. The way that this anchors our lives and opens up into our vocations. And it opens up into our witness. We learn to live in God's new world to become people marked by worship. We gather here to adore and celebrate the one true God, the stunningly generous creator of all things, the source of all joy and all delight and all daylight, the source of everything that's lovely and lively. We learn to, to gather around the supremely wise ruler and guide of the nations. He is the father of Jesus. He's the God who makes promises and keeps them. He's the Lord of the angels. He is utterly faithful. He's utterly loving, just love to the core of his being. And his love is as broad and as great as this universe. It is as high and it is as deep as our misery. And it is more powerful than death. And so on Sunday after Sunday, we worship him. And as we do, as we focus on him, celebrating him, we know that when we do that, he will keep his promises. And what are his promises? He has promised to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from our sins, to speak his word, to hear our prayers and praises, to feed us at his table and to send us out into the world under his blessing. And because we trust that he will do what he has promised, we come together expecting looking to our God to work on us and to work in us so that we can go out of here and work for him in this world. Let's pray.